are done with First Timothy. Uh, well, <laughs> you know what? I looked at what we were doing exactly a year ago, and we were in First Timothy chapter two, which means we've been in First Timothy for well over a year. All right. So um, we're done with First Timothy, and uh, what I like to do when we end the series is just kind of take a deep breath and do some topical messages, uh, kind of get the big picture of where we may need to go, and then jump into uh, another uh, book of the Bible after that, maybe go back to Matthew, uh, because First Timothy was a break from Matthew, actually. So, um, But today, here's what I want to do. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you have probably met many Christians who have battle scars, okay? Not from going to war overseas, but from wars fought in other churches, okay? Uh, There are many walking wounded Christians who have scars from either relationship issues in churches or how things were mishandled, and a lot of these Christians are pretty gun-shy, They're like, I was hurt before, I don't want to be hurt again, so they're kind of sitting on the edges before they jump in, wondering if it's safe to jump in. So, here's what I want to do today. Now, I would never be so foolish as to say that, well, welcome to Valleybrook, no one ever has any conflict or any problems at Valleybrook, because we're a slice of heaven here on earth. No. Okay? In fact, I promise you that if you go to any church long enough, including this one, you're going to have some conflict with somebody. Okay? Maybe even me. Maybe even her. Maybe even him. Maybe... You know what? It's called... uh, It's called sinners living together in community. All right? But I do believe if a church tries to uphold some biblical... Values and some biblical principles of how to get along, um, I think that the, the bruises and the bumps can be less painful. So today, I want to talk about how to uh, not only survive, but how to thrive in a church. All right? In fact, can, I, can somebody shoot that machine, pull the plug out back there? Oh, it's the duck. All right, it's not the machine. Kevin, just lean against that duck the rest of the hour, if you could, please. <laughs> Okay. Um, All right. First of all, here's what I want to do. I want to give you six words that uh, are kind of buzzwords to help us think about certain concepts, uh, to help us not only survive but thrive. First word is the word gossip. All right? The word gossip. In Proverbs 10.19, it says this. When words are many, sin is is not absent. You ever think about that? Why is it true that when there's lots and lots of words, sin is not absent? Well, usually, the more words, the more volume of words, the less thought has gone into those words. And the less thought that goes into the words, the less careful we are, and we're more apt to just kind of blurt out uh, whatever comes into our mind at the second, whatever's on our hearts, and we aren't as restrained and refined in what we say. Now, have you ever noticed that 
today, everybody is on a cell phone 24-7. And if they're not on a cell phone, they're texting. And if they're not texting, they're on Facebook. And, and it's, it's this constant barrage of words all the time. Now, I mean, I've, I've been walking down the street and I've almost knocked people over, not because I'm not watching, but because they're walking down the street texting like this, and boom, you, you hit one, you hit another. Words, words, words all the time. And where words are many, sin is not absent. Now, if you kind of run into somebody who's talking on the cell phone, most of the time it's not discussing deep philosophical or biblical things and debating between free market economics and Keynesian economics. It's, did you hear what they said? So-and-so in the office said this, and my boss did this, and I'm going to let him have it. It's just gossip. It's, it's people just blathering on and on without thinking. Now, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, gives... Uh, a description of humanity. He says we've become utterly depraved in our sin. And the, not the highlight, but the low light of the chapter is when he gives this sin list in Romans 1. He says they, humanity, has become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And we look at that list and we go, boy, that's horrible, except there's one that doesn't seem that bad, gossip. And that maybe tells more about us than about the text. You see, God puts gossip in the category with murderer and strife and deceit and God-haters. Okay? Why is gossip such a bad sin. Well, um, look at this verse. Proverbs 21, 20, 22, 1. A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed better than silver or gold. A person's name, a person's reputation is more valuable than their bank account. Would you ever break in to a fellow Valley Brooker's home and steal their stuff? No. I wouldn't break into their home and steal their stuff. What this is saying is that when we gossip about people and their reputation, their good name gets hurt, it is worse than breaking into their home and stealing their stuff. Now, um, a lot of people go, well, nobody knows you know, what I share. You would be amazed at how much gossip gets back, especially to pastors. I virtually know everything. Some of you are sweating right now. Why is this? Let me tell you why this is true. It's the nature of gossip. People don't go, hey, I want to gossip to you about so-and-so. Here's what they do. They go, don't tell anyone. This is private. This is confidential. And here's what the other person says. Who am I going to tell? 
Okay, so now we've made the pact, and the, the information gets shared, and that's not gossip because we've gone through the routine. Don't tell anyone. Who would I tell? Okay. Then the next person goes, don't tell anyone. Who would I tell? Okay, so we've made the pact, and that's not gossip. And, of course, that gets spread. And then, of course, the spouse gets told. And everybody thinks it's confidential, but everybody knows everybody else's business. Okay? Um, That's gossip. Now, how do we... And let's, you know, let's admit everybody does it. Everybody gossips. Everybody shares information. How, though, can we help one another to stop gossiping? Right? Now, typically, you know, the pastor refers to gossip occasionally and people feel convicted and then for a day or two they stop and then they go right back to it. Right? I want to give you some real practical help here on how to overcome gossip. Now realize it takes two to gossip. There is the gossiper and the gossipy, or the, the, the teller and the hearer. Okay? I am going to call on the hearers to really try to help in this situation. You know when you walk into like a hospital and they go, code blue or code red or code green. They even have codes at Walmart. For lost toddler, code screamer, screamer, I don't know, screamer on the loose, whatever. There's all these codes so people know what to do. I want to give you a code to help prevent gossip. When you're in a conversation and you start to feel uncomfortable, call it code feathers. You go, what's a code feathers? Okay, now, some of you have heard this story before. I, I hope you've heard it before because it's a classic and I, wanna, I, wanna, uh, I want it to become kind of a story we talk about a lot. Stories told of a woman who uh, was a known gossiper and she knew it and she was feeling bad. She went to her pastor and said, Pastor, help me overcome my gossip. And he said, all right, go to Walmart, buy a feather pillow. Go up on the cliff, the town overlooked, uh, uh, it was a big valley, and on a windy day like we had last week, cut open the feather pillow, shake it out in the wind, come back two weeks later. She goes, that is the weirdest pastoral advice I've ever had. She went to Walmart, she did it, feathers blew all over. She came back and she said, now what? pastor says, now I want you to go back and gather all the feathers. She goes, that's impossible, they're all over the world by now. And he said, that's the same with gossip. The minute it leaves the mouth, the minute it leaves the text, the minute it goes on Facebook, the minute it, the cell phone, it, it, you can't recover it. So what I would encourage us to do is this. The minute you feel like either you or somebody else might be violating the gossip issue, call a Code Feathers. Code Feathers doesn't mean I'm accusing you of gossip. Code Feathers means let's stop and evaluate whether we should continue. Spouses, do this at home. Kids, you can do this to me. All right? It's going to be pretty quiet in a lot of homes. All right? But a code feathers, I think, would really help. Now, let me give you another thing. Issue of authority. Okay? 
There's another story. I've used it before. I'm going to use it again. I hope we use it a lot because we're going to turn it into another code. We're going to call it Code Centerpieces. All right, you've heard the story. Uh, in Leadership Magazine, Leadership Magazine is a, a magazine written for pastors about how to lead your church. And this was like way back in the 80s. There was an article in there on a pastor. Um, and the, the, the picture was how to bring reconciliation to warring people in your church. And there was a church that was having a big banquet. They were building a building, raising money. And they, um, they said, well, let's have a banquet with nice tablecloths and china. And uh, two people on the committee said, well, what are we going to do for centerpieces? And one lady said, well, we're going to put fine china in the center. And the, a guy on the committee said, no, no, we're talking about growth. Let's put a little pine sapling in a Dixie cup and that will represent growth, and somebody can take it home and plant it. And these two didn't agree with one another. They started calling each other names, and they stormed off. And then the article was about how the pastor uh, brought reconciliation. First he went over to one person's house, and then he went over to the other person's house. Then he went back to the other person, and then he went back to the other person. Then he called a meeting, and then they all hugged and kissed. And And then it, it explained all the hours of work that went into this. And at the very last part of the article, it says, now they both eventually left the church anyways. And I always look at that and I go, Satan has won. People split the body of Christ over centerpieces. Over trivia that doesn't matter. People are going to hell all around us. And we waste our time getting upset over centerpieces. What must Jesus think? What must Satan think? Now, here's what I like to do. I ask the question in that case with the fine china versus the pine sapling. Who was right? Who is right? Who thinks the pine sapling was right? Caleb, all right. Who thinks the, the fine china was right? How many of you think this is a trick question and you're not voting no matter what? Okay, good. You are smart. <laughs> who, who was right? Answer, whoever was in charge of that committee. Whoever was in charge. See, this is an authority issue. God has set up institutions. The family's an institution. The church is an institution. And, this is going to shock some of you, human government is a God-ordained institution. And God has clearly laid out in his word. Now, people don't want to obey this because they have problems with authority. But God has clearly said there needs to be lines of authority. There are leaders in the church that you are to submit to. There are leaders in the family that you're to submit to. Children, that's called your parents. Wives, that's called your husband. If you don't like it, rip it out of your Bible. But don't call yourself a follower of God's Word. Right? Now, people who, don't, uh, who, who can't submit to authority, they always have to be right. Uh, there, there, there's one of two problems. Either you're a control freak. Knock, knock. Control freak. Now, you say control freak who? Oh, I used that last week. Okay, There's control freaks who always have to be right, and there are no lines of authority for them. Right? Or there are people with authority issues. They don't just have a problem 
with a person on a committee. They have a problem with the boss. They have a, they've had a problem all their life. And God says part of following Christ is to understand the lines of authority and to submit yourself to them. Why? They're wrong! 90% of all cases, it doesn't matter. Now, if we're talking about the deity of Christ, the purity of the Gospel, the inspiration of Scripture, you die on those hills. If we're talking about when should this meeting be and how long should that meeting be and I like to do things this way or that way, who cares? Shut up and follow the leader. Unless you're a control freak who always has to have your way. But you know what? If you're a control freak who always has to have your way, guess who you really have the problem with? It's God. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by who? God. All right? And you go, well, I'm not going to submit myself to this government. When Paul wrote this, who was in charge? Nero. Who chopped Paul's head off? Nero. Who wrote this? Paul. Paul says God has even placed Nero in charge. Well, I didn't vote for that guy. So what? You're wasting your time arguing against God. There are, are, now, if you can in a democracy change the rules, do it. There's nothing wrong with that, but there has to be an attitude that says God, God loves order, God loves lines of authority. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will, be, will bring judgment on themselves. Right? So there's lines of authority. Now, by the way, in the church it says this, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Now, we don't walk around here with iron fists. Obey your elders. There's some very nice elders. Okay? But still, there are lines of authority. We have very nice ministry leaders. In fact, one of the qualifications for being a ministry leader, you've got to be nice. Okay? But just because people are nice doesn't mean you bowl them over and ignore the lines of authority. Okay? Now, here's the problem. People who have authority issues, and, and this is where the whole egalitarian, complementarian thing comes in with, with uh, should women or men be the leaders in the church? Should women or men be the leaders in the family? Here's the whole, the whole issue. People think that a, a role, a title of leadership, is a value judgment. Are you saying you're better than me? No. Roles, role assignments, are not value judgments. Right? Let me give you an illustration. Um, some of you know uh, I, I coach football. Actually, Troy got me involved with coaching football. Um, in fact, Troy Meeks set up the entire seventh grade program. Um, he did a, a, a great job. This year, I was one of the head coaches in uh, seventh grade. Over 16 dads who are coaches. We had four teams, 16 dad coaches. Jeff Frazier and I were the head coaches. Okay. Over me and Jeff is a board, Batavia Youth Football. 
the president of the board was also one of the 16 dads under me. Now, that's confusing. Off the practice field, he's my boss. On the practice field, I'm his boss. When he goes and coaches his game, he's the head coach. If I stand there on the sideline, I don't get to take over. Okay? It, it worked very well because everybody understood lines of authority. But it's not a value judgment. Somebody's got to be in charge. Right? So um, the question is, do you respect and can you submit to lines of authority even if you don't necessarily agree because in the long run, 90% of things don't matter. Okay? We move on. Oh, by the way, here's our, here's our code. If you see a violation of this, you call a code centerpiece. Okay? Doesn't mean that they're guilty of dissing authority. It just means that let's step back here, family. Let's step back here, friend. I'm going to call a code centerpiece and see if maybe there's some authority issues that are going on here. Right. Let me give you a third one. The word consumer. Right. Now, um, you may not even be aware of this, but the way the evangelical church in America has evolved over the last 50 years is we've adopted a marketing model. Okay? We, we basically are selling people on church. That's not biblical. Right? The church is not Walmart. Though it has changed in so many ways uh, that, that people would, would hardly know the difference between how the gospel is marketed and how Walmart is marketed. It's biblically, though, it's not a retail outlet. But here's the deal. People come to church today because the church has trained them to do this with a shopper mentality. The shopper mentality says, I'm here, serve me. Okay, what can you do for me? The servant mentality, on the other hand, says, I'm here, how can I serve you? World of difference between those two mentalities. Now, which one, honestly, do you come to church with? I'm here to evaluate the retail outlet. What product can they provide? What kind of worship can they provide? What kind of preaching can they provide? How about children's programs? And I've got my tithe that I might give or I might not give based on this consumer model. The servant says, yeah, I want to look for something that's biblical, but I want a family. How can I serve the family? One of the smartest things I ever heard, a, a, a sermon, I don't remember who said it, but the pastor said this. When you go to church, you should ask two questions. Question one, what does God want to say to me? Question two, what does God want to say through me? I come to receive from God and I come to encourage and to build up. What can I say to build other people up? Right? What does God want to say to me and through me? Let me mention a guy um, from Wisconsin. I pastored a church for 10 years in Appleton, Wisconsin. And um, one day we had some visitors. 
and I knew who the guy was when he walked in. His name was Dick Kendall. Hi, Dick, if you're listening via Internet. Okay. Uh, Dick Kendall was a very successful businessman. He was also the chairman of the board of the local uh, Christian radio station, very powerful radio station up there. He was the chairman of the board. He was also the chairman of the board of his, uh, uh, his Lutheran church that he was going to. And there he was. He walked into the service. And, of course, I thought, man, we better treat him well. Right? So after the service, I'm uh, you know, talking to people, working my way, and I was going to meet him. But he was already busy meeting other people, introducing himself, and making visitors feel welcome. Because his attitude was, even though this may not be my church, this is my Lord, and I'm here to serve my Lord, and one way I can serve my Lord on Sunday morning, whether I'm at my church or another church, is by um, making visitors feel welcome. So he was doing the job of welcoming people, not saying, well, I'm the visitor here, and I expect to be treated like I'm at Walmart. No, he was there serving. Now, we had announced in the announcements that that Wednesday we were going to have our little adventure club, which is a midweek meeting of the kids. We were going to have this thing we did every year where the kids brought baked goods and served coffee, and the adults came, and it was also a fundraiser. You know, you paid for it, and it raised some money, and... Um, I mean, it was kind of like if you're a, a parent of kids who are in Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts. It's one of those things you kind of do. But it's not something, you know, it's not an outreach you're going to invite the public to. So we invite people to come. It's just something we do. Right? I remember uh, as I walked in, it was starting to snow. And uh, as I was setting up and getting ready, I, I noticed, wow, it's starting to really accumulate. I, I need to go out there and, and shovel that. And I went out there, and somebody was already out there shoveling. Yes, it was. Dick Kendall, the new guy, picked up a shovel and was shoveling the walk at this little kid's event. And I thought, oh, no. This isn't an event that a visitor should come to. It's not spectacular. It's just church. It's brownies and cookies and, oh, no. Dick came in, sat down, joking with the kids, talking with the people, introducing himself. Just, he wasn't there to be served. He was there to serve. He was there to, to, to give warmth to others. And this guy you know, became part of, part of our church, and I've always used him as a model of how Christians should act. Now, this week, as I'm writing this sermon, I'm thinking, who could I use as an example here at Valley Brook as a Dick Kendall? And I wrote down a name, and then I wrote down another name, and I wrote down it, and then I realized we're such a blessed church. You're all Dick Kendalls. We have people who show up early and set up, and people who stay late and take the chairs down, and they don't complain. We have people in the nursery who've turned a hallway into a first-class nursery. We have people serving in children's church. We don't even have a secretary at this church because people do secretarial work in the bulletin. Okay? Um, now, there may be some who would come and go, well, this isn't a profession. Where's the building? Where's the... And there would be others who would come and say, now this is a church filled with Christ-like people. 
Remember, Jesus walked in to the Last Supper. They were all arguing over who was the greatest. And it says, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Let's call it a, a, a code Walmart here. We start to get too much into a, a consumer mentality. Maybe we ought to call a code, uh, a code Walmart. Right? Let, me, uh, let me cover the, the rest real quickly. Third is what you call tradition. Remember, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field and they were eating the... You could glean. You could just eat. It was like free snacks. It was allowed. But he was being criticized. The, the, the Pharisees said this, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. They had a tradition, the Pharisees, that you had to use a certain amount of water to wash your hands so you were ceremonially clean. And Jesus didn't do that. You are breaking the traditions of the elders. You are not a holy man, is what they were saying. Nah, 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 nah. We caught you. You're, you're a sham. You're not the Messiah. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. You have raised your tradition over the Word of God. Okay? Now, the church world is split into two major divisions Rome, Roman Catholic, and Protestant. Rome has said there are two sources of authority divine scripture and divine tradition, or, or uh, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. So, to know what the rules are, you need your Bible and you need all the tradition gathered and both are of equal level. The Protestant church said, wait a minute, sola scriptura, scripture alone. We are not going to elevate tradition to the same level as scripture. We are proud sola scripturists who believe in the Bible alone. Now, having said that, some of the most tradition-enslaved people on the face of the earth are Bible-believing evangelical Christians. Okay? especially those raised in a Bible-teaching church because things were done a certain way. And the, the cry of, of uh, the traditionalist is, we've never done it that way before. Okay? Some of you were really thrown off today when my family was not sitting over here. <laughs> What's wrong? Well, why are they sitting over here? Who passed that rule? It just felt like sitting over here today. Yeah, You don't even like it, do you? You're under the spotlight here? Okay. It's all right. Okay. All right. I once uh, was, pre uh, well, I was pastoring up in Wisconsin, and I had a lady pull me aside before the service. Her daughter was singing during the offertory. She said, don't you know? You don't sing. You don't take the offering when somebody's singing. That is, that is disrespectful to the singer. I went and checked my Bible on that. I didn't find anything in there about whether you can take the offertory during the, uh, you know, when somebody's singing or not. There was nothing in there. Okay. I, I always love it. You went long today. What's long? Where's that written? Now, I say that I went long today, but you know, an hour and five minutes. That's, how, that's what long is. Where, where, where is that? Um, well, we always used to do it this way. You, we always, the way I've never heard anything like that. Biblically, though, you know. So, so the diehard traditionalist says 
Um, Sola Scriptura. And we've never done it that way before. So, um, you know who that is? Yeah, it's Tevia, Fiddler on a Roof. Remember the song, Tradition. <laughs> tradition. Code Tradition. Maybe you've never heard of anything like that before. So what? What's that matter? I've never heard of a church that meets on cold metal folding chairs. Now, what did they sit on in the Bible? What building did they meet in in the Bible? How long was the service in the Bible? I love the story where Paul preached on and on into the night and a guy named Eutychus fell out of the third-story window and he died. I've never killed any of you, all right? Yes. <laughs> all right, you two go back over there. Another one, um, Ephesians 4, Paul says, Therefore a prisoner, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. What's that word? Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul is saying, I want you to work hard to be unified. And the key here is bearing with one another. Okay, So the next word here is bear. Not bears, bear. Have you ever known somebody who's always hurt? Okay, They're always offended or hurt. And half the time, you, you, you don't know what you've done or what you've said, but you're sure it's you. Okay. And they don't tell you, but they want you to come crawling and say, well, I, I'm just so sorry. Okay. Um, I call these people human bruises. They're just a big black and blue mark. Always hurt. Okay. In fact, we'll call this one code bruise. Okay. Now, um, can I speak to you if you are always offended by people and always hurt? Okay. Maybe nobody's ever told you this, but you have learned a dysfunctional, manipulative, passive-aggressive way to get your way. Maybe Mama taught it to you because Mamas teach this and it's passed on to children but Jesus calls us to, rather than saying, oh, I'm hurt, to realize that people are going to say things and do things where they don't mean to hurt you. It's just who we are. And we are called to toughen up and bear with one another. Right? And bear with one another. Do you know that the perpetual victim, the human bruise, is almost worse than a wolf who comes into a church and tries to aggressively divide it. The wolf you can spot. They're aggressive. They're, they, they have a plan. The human bruise, on the other hand, is far more subtle far more emotionally manipulative and far more emotionally draining on everybody. 
Oh, what did I do? Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. But you say, but I'm a sensitive person. Possibly. Or you may be a self-obsessed narcissist. Okay. A tool that Satan uses to bring division, to destroy the unity of a church, of a marriage, of a family, of a business, of a neighborhood, because everybody is on the... uh, they, They suck the joy out of community and everybody's worried about, is so-and-so offended? Am I okay? Did I do something? I'm, oh, what did they do? I'm sure it was pastor. He probably said something. Uh, oh, 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 oh. It's sinful. Now, everybody gets offended or hurt occasionally. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the professional wounded person. Okay? You need to repent of your immature behavior, turn from it and get back in the game and play with the big boys. Right? No, we, we don't put up with that around here. I'm so hurt because so, so-and-so did this or didn't do that or said this. Or, how about you evaluate, do you think they meant to do that? I don't care if they meant to. It still hurts. Sorry. You know, let, me, let me give you a physical verse here. Paul, he's in one town, says, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. That's how bruised and battered he is. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. <laughs> he is so bruised and battered that they think he's dead, but he gets up, he brushes himself off, and does he go into three years of, of isolation? No, he gets up and he preaches the gospel the next day. I think that's a physical picture of what some of us need to do emotionally. Get up, brush yourself off, and get back in the game and quit sucking the joy out of community. So, here's a code, human bruise. Okay? I don't don't put up with that with my children. So-and-so hurt me. Shake it off and get back out there and play football. Caitlin? No. <laughs> Lip is hanging off, you know. Pull it off, throw it down, and get back in the game. Right? No. Um, last one, forgive. Now, there are oversensitive human bruises. You need to toughen up. But then, sin happens. Real sin. Not just imagined offense, but real sinful offense. Okay? Here's the first test of true fellowship in a new church. When you're sinned against and the person attempts to talk it through, do you run? 
and go off to the next church until it happens there, and then go to the next church until it happens there, and go to the next church until it happens there? Or do you work it through and forgive? Millions have never worked it through. It's just church to church to church to church. Because that first test of forgiveness is never passed. Now, forgiveness is a huge topic. The key to being able to forgive when you've genuinely been sinned against is remembering how much you have been forgiven. Remember the parable of the two servants? Master calls them in. He says to the one, hey, you owe me 10,000 talents. Now, don't think $10,000. Think Billions of dollars. Now, this is a slave, a servant. He has gotten into debt billions of dollars. And the master says, pay up. And he goes, oh, give me some time. Like he actually thinks he can pay up. But then the master has compassion on him, and he forgives him his debt. Now, we hear that, and of course, that's God forgiving a sinner of his massive debt. We hear that, and we have a tendency to think, well... It was no, there was no cost on the part of the master. He just wrote it off. It didn't cost... No. It cost him billions of dollars to forgive that guy. It cost Christ his life to forgive you and me of our gossip and our consumerism and all these sins. It cost him his life. So that's the analogy there. Now, there's a second servant. The first servant goes out, and he's free, he's free. He runs into a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii. Okay? Now, we hear 100 denarii, and we think a few bucks. That wasn't a few bucks. A denarii was a day's wage. So if you make $100,000 a year, 100 denarii is $40,000. That's not just a little sin. That's somebody's hurt you pretty bad. I'll never forgive that person. They've wounded me. They've hurt me. And I know they're begging for forgiveness, but I will never forgive. So the, the king, the master in this story, hears about this second little incident where the guy refuses to forgive the, the guy the 40000 bucks, and he hauls him in. He says, I gave you a billion. I forgave you billions. And you won't forgive the guy 40000 And then he says, throw him in jail. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You go, that, that proves that you can lose your salvation. No, what that proves is he never got it to begin with. He never understood grace to begin with. If you understand grace, you don't go around choking people wanting your 40000 because you've been forgiven a billion. He never got it. The key here, though, to be able to do all this... See, this all calls for supernatural grace, a supernatural ability to love and to bear and to forgive and to not gossip 
and to, to rather than being served to serve. It requires supernatural grace. Where do we go to be reminded of the grace we've been given? The cross. The cross is where God gave His life to forgive us. And then He promises to pour abundant grace upon us so we can go on living the Christian life. By the way, code denarii, that's one where uh, there's bitterness and unforgiveness. Call it code denarii. Here's what I want to do. We're going to have communion. And um, why don't we have the worship team come on up. And, um, you know, we always, we always call you to examine.